Sounding Board, the monthly podcast from new and classic music discussion since 2016. Follow the team on Twitter and Facebook at Sounding Board 69. Welcome to episode 33 of Sounding Board. Today I have with me Josh Wells. Hello. Welcome back, Josh, and Amy Laurent. Hello. And we're going to be plunging into the world of cover versions, not listing everyone that's ever been recorded, but maybe talking about some of the issues surrounding them and the way they've been viewed over the years. But first of all, folks, anything in the news that's caught your eye? Yeah, three things, really quickly. Firstly, The Village Voice, the New York-based alt-weekly newspaper, which kind of was a a leading light in music criticism over the latter half of the 20th century, is closing for good. It's not going to be producing any new content. Including online. Including online, yeah. Yeah. I think it it stopped circulating its paper version last year, but now it's closing for good, which I think is is really sad and a shame, but... I think maybe it's just one of those, a sign of the times in some ways, like as culture criticism becomes more democratic due to the internet, it just becomes harder to monetize. But, you know, the, the New York Times podcast has got a, a two-episode retrospective, which is super interesting, just re- hearing and, and learning about the, the ways in which music criticism kind of took shape and how they policed each other and the, the culture the culture in that office is just really interesting, so I recommend checking that out. Secondly... Paul McCartney's got a new GQ profile. Uh, it's quite lengthy. Um, the journalist who wrote the profile, was he, he set out at the start that he was going to attempt to tease out some different Beatles anecdotes from the ones we've all heard a thousand times. So I read that and thought, oh, cool. But then Paul related a story about how him and John Lennon masturbated together in the dark, and I hope I just wish nobody had asked. <laughs> <laughs> so that's out there in the world, and we all have to deal with it. Uh, thirdly, Cardi B threw a shoe at Nicki Minaj at New York Fashion Week. Who throws a shoe? Yeah. Cardi B throws shoes. <laughs> She's yeah. quite famous now. Yeah, no, no, no. It's quite an expensive <laughs> shoe as well. Yeah, it was yeah. a red bottom. Red that's, bottom. What, that's what we want to know. Red bottom. Yeah. Well, it was, a, it was a, I can confirm, it was a red patent stiletto, I believe. It was wow. a very nice shoe. Yeah. Anyway, she threw it in the direction of Nicki Minaj, did not hit Nicki Minaj. It seemed like one of her friends, whose name is Ra Ali, intercepted the shoe Ra Ali is a cast member in Love, on Love and Hip Hop New York, much as you know Cardi B also was a cast member of Love and Hip Hop New York, and, and according to her bio, a celebrity shoe consultant, <laughs> <laughs> and also apparently Nicki Minaj's bodyguard. So I'm just loving the fact that we've got this sort of like designer shoe based warfare in the hip hop world. <laughs> that was really amusing me coming back to Village Voice I wanted to say that I'm very saddened by that shutting down because when I first went to America in 1996 I remember discovering Village Voice and Mm. devoured it on a two week holiday I did to New York at that point really enjoyed it and of course importantly it resulted in sort of spin off and similar publications across loads of American cities 
and, yeah. and most of which were always my first port of call whenever I landed in a new city. It would be to find you'd find the, the old weekly of that city. The old weekly, and 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 in a way, it's particularly a shame because the current mood of the times, I think, in alternative culture is really kind of sort of best summed up by the kind of editorial voice of publications like that so I think it's it's a real pity yeah I mean I think the the podcast gets into some of the reasons behind that I think now um, the speed of delivery of a lot of culture criticism now is just so quick Mm. that there's the room for the editing that would happen at at alt weeklies and you know they, they really did work very hard on the quality of the writing which is really really notable and you know also one of the ways that it, the, the village voice and other alt weeklies would monetize would be through their classifieds and there isn't really now you know i think craigslist put paid to that yes really yeah it's so. been a, a long downhill slope, probably for the best part of 15 20 years actually mm. i think which is a bit of a shame josh any news from you yeah so i think one of the big things kind of dominating the music scene at the moment is the sad death of Mac Miller who uh, was a reasonably underground rapper but then dated for a while Ariana Grande who's obviously a huge pop star and sort of became a little bit more into the public consciousness and particularly over here because he performed in the Manchester concert that went on um, so it turns out he's sadly kind of taken his own life and I guess yet another kind of pop star musician that has died he was only 26 um, yeah I've I guess it is yet another thing that's bringing up people kind of talking about mental health, which is obviously, you know, it's good that it's bringing up the conversation again. Um, but I thought that was just worth noting because it's just sad. Um, and, you know, one of those interesting things of uh, why creative people, particularly as they get successful, seem to be very susceptible to mental health issues, which, you know, that's a, a long conversation. Probably a conversation for a whole pod. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It would be a really um, useful thing to explore yeah. and heighten awareness. Yeah. Yeah, and so, uh, oh, sorry. So, yeah, no, yeah. certainly, certainly this was discussed quite a bit when Avicii died. And, you know, yes. But mm, yeah. obviously isn't resolved, so... No, you know, no. continue that conversation. Mm. That's, that's obviously multifaceted and stuff, but yeah, I just thought it was worth mentioning. And staying on the hip-hop theme... Um, but just sticking to kind of music, there's actually Eminem has recently broken a record of having the most successive number one albums, which is nine um, in the UK, which actually betters ABBA and Led Zeppelin. So um, he's actually just, despite his best work generally being seen as being well, <laughs> well in the past, I just thought that was quite a significant thing, really, to have the most consecutive number one albums in the UK yeah, of all much. time. And uh, we've resisted the temptation to look at Eminem's album as the album of the month. This month we're going to be looking at Mitski's Be the Cowboy a bit later on. But uh, Amy, Josh mentioned there in a rather sadder context, Ariana Grande, I wondered, she's just had a new album out that has received a lot of publicity and I didn't know whether you wanted to sum up in a few words what you thought of her general oeuvre. I'm still obsessing over her romance. I think it's super adorable. The meme with the lollipop, so cute. I haven't actually heard the album yet, right. um, but I've never been a huge fan of her as a persona. I kind of feel like she she represents a slight step backwards. See, we had in the early noughties, we had a lot of pop stars that female pop stars that seem to be kind of moving towards the slightly more edgy or. Um, perhaps more subversive angle, like the early years of Lady Gaga, and it feels as though the kind of very unthreateningly kind of like little kind of kitten glamour look of Ariana and her very uh, technically adept but perhaps um, lacking in emotional depth, her vocals maybe it felt like a bit of a step backwards. 
backwards. Right. Um, but it does feel like she really has hit her stride. So I'm looking forward to um, wrestling with this new era of Ariana. Yeah. Okay, after the break, we're going to be talking about cover versions. Hello again, everyone. We're talking about cover versions today. And as a kickoff for the discussion, I thought I'd ask both Josh and Amy, the two panellists today, of, of a single classic cover version. It could be good or bad, and why they think that tune works or doesn't. So, Josh, can I come to you first? Yeah, so the song that I thought about was Johnny Cash's version of Hurt, um, which was originally by Nine Inch Nails. And uh, Johnny Cash takes that song and adds something really different to it in that I think the sort of the original song has a lot more aggression to it and a slightly harsher sound. Johnny Cash really takes it and puts it into his own style, that's like more Americana folksy style with his kind of deep uh, baritone voice. And I really like that song because by changing the style of it, although keeping the melody and most of the lyrics, it's it really sort of speaks about actually where he was at the time in his career. So uh, the famous producer Rick Rubin had basically sort of come across him sort of doing these tiny little club shows and, you know, he was almost in retirement really, really wasn't very well known and appreciated much anymore and said, look, you know, I still, you're a classic artist, I still think you've got a lot to offer, let's just come to the studio, we'll just do some songs that you like and kind of got him to put that down. And there's, there's something... That, there's a real kind of longing, I guess, in that song that particularly seems to fit him very well. So what I liked about that was it sounds like a song he could have written and could be about him. And so he, he makes it his own, but there's also something kind of cool about drawing a link to, you know, a, a slightly more, I mean, I suppose, not necessarily one exactly contemporary. They've been out for a long time themselves by then, but by sort of, sort of shows how the... Uh, the emotions of that song are actually fairly universal across generations and yeah I just thought it was beautifully done and sounded like him but still paid homage to the original song and gave it a just another angle to look at that song from which was one of the reasons I really enjoyed that that's a that. great example I really love that version I love the original version as well actually mm. but it is very different in that kind of Nine Inch Nails way it's very obviously it's in that industrial sort of style and it's very aggressive. There's a kind of defensive aggressiveness to it that mm. I can make you hurt. And then mm. Johnny Cash's version is there's that kind of fragility to it. Mm. And it's it's much more, you know, it's a, it's about the place he is in his life being elderly, looking back on his his past. And it's, it's beautiful. It's heartbreaking. Mm. It is truly, truly excellent. I, mean, I think that really transcends the original one. I mean, I'd also mention another one of his cover versions, which is the Personal Jesus uh, yes. Depeche Mode, which yeah. I think is good. I mean, I do prefer the original still, yeah. I think, but I mean, I think uh, you know that certainly brought that song to like a bit of a wider audience. Yeah, as well. well, I think so, particularly as kind yeah. of later in his life, you know, faith became quite an important thing yeah. to him. He did quite a lot of gospel covers as well, obviously, because that's how he started doing yeah. gospel covers. So quite an interesting choice of a song as someone, you know, that adds a certain kind of twist to yeah. the lyrics I think mm. somewhat controversially in a minute I want to on the next point I want to talk about authenticity and <laughs> that kind of thing which I think Amy's got a few things to say about <laughs> authenticity or cod authenticity <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, uh, you can't really think of Don't anybody who's maybe more 
authentic in inverted commas than Johnny Cash but firstly Amy what's your song that you'd like to pick well I'm going super basic because there was a BBC poll in 2014 for best cover version of all time and Pet Shop Boys always on my mind won Mm. and you can't really this is so great it's like it's very this is is a song that it's a standard it's been covered over 300 times I think and by Elvis so you know by some really kind of quite well known people (laughs) Willie Carlson but this version it's very it's it's completely different to all the other versions and there's this very kind of bombastic synth heavy production and it's set against Neil Tennant's kind of trademark detached vocal style and those two things together kind of make you question the sincerity of the protagonist which is unlike other versions which are kind of more straightforwardly emotive I think and sad and reaching out to the the other person that the protagonist is singing to and I think given how how the protagonist has behaved all these things I should have said and done I never took the time it's totally plausible and it feels true that you'd hear it and you'd question the sincerity of it the the ability of this protagonist to really express themselves properly so I think it's such a kind of interesting subtly subversive angle to take but at the same time it's just a pure sugar rush of a pop song you don't have to think about it in order to enjoy it so it works on so many levels yeah absolutely it's sort of a reverse of the Johnny Cash thing in that they've taken he's taken industrial sound and made it so maybe a bit more emotive by using acoustic instruments and a voice which sort of makes you feel a bit more a sort of bit more personal about it was they've sort of yeah played with that detachment and more industrial electronic sound on what's yeah, traditionally yeah, like an emotive thing and it does process. make you just look at it again in that slightly different way you know? mm. so on that point I think you've picked out two really good examples I mean should a cover version per se seem to be different from the original well I would say like I, I think if Artistically speaking, I think if an art, if a cover version isn't different from the original, then why are you doing it in the first place? Obviously, there's a difference between the purpose of a cover version artistically versus its purpose commercially, and we can talk about the latter mm. aspect later on. But, you know, I think, generally speaking, you're always going to prefer a version of a song in a genre that you're partial to or from your own era over a version that's recorded in an era or genre that you have no connection to. So, kind of, cover versions are like translations of songs to new audiences or new regions or new generations and it's kind of a way for classic songs to stay relevant that's one function of a cover version and the industry is obviously savvy to this it's really good at repurposing its own content i remember this is going back i mean this is dating me but uh ronan keating in the late 90s had a reputation for kind of launch as a vehicle for launching country songs to a global market but they they were re-recorded detwanged and with some like Irish pan pipes on them or something like that <laughs> and they were huge huge hits they were huge hits and they wouldn't have been in their original country recordings because there just isn't an appetite for country music globally yeah yeah no it's a good point and I think you've got something to say as I alluded to just a little bit earlier about what I might call earnest white boy indie covers of pop songs any particularly gruesome examples uh, well I mean yeah you Okay, so this is one of my crosses to bear because I really hate it when indie bands do this most of the time. It's like when indie rock bands, usually male-fronted indie rock bands, cover pop songs, it's usually an effort to legitimise that music. Like, oh, look, you know, I know you might think that this is just fluff, but if you hear it the way it's meant to be sound, meant to be played by, like, a man with a guitar, then you'll, you'll see it's actually good. 
And (laughs) I find that really upsetting. And there are more examples than I I care to even think about. Manic Street Preachers did a version of Umbrella that was painful. Elbow went on Radio 1 Live Round, the soundtrack to Ford Mondeos Across the World. (laughs) And, and did a cover, an instrumental cover of Independent Women by Destiny's Child with a kazoo taking place of vocals. <laughs> and I just wanted to slap them in the face. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, like most, most recently, maybe, because these have kind of fallen off this, this decade. There's not so many of them as there used to be. But Ryan Adams covered the entirety of Taylor Swift's 2014 album, 1989. And, you know, unlike Elbow, I do think this came from a sincere place. I really think he wanted to showcase Taylor Swift's songwriting abilities. I believe him when he says that. But the problem with it, and the problem with a lot of these cover versions, is these indie rock covers of, of, of songs from other genres. They take material that's kind of multi-textural, and they flatten it so that all the songs sound basically the same. And that was certainly the case with Ryan Adams' Ryan 1989. But Taylor Swift isn't an underappreciated, undiscovered artist that he's bringing to the mainstream. <laughs> I know, you have if, to if wonder. anything, he needed the leg up in the public consciousness rather than her. And yeah. That's so a good point. Yeah. That's a really uh, good you know, point. I, I found that... It's so arrogant <laughs> to do mm. like a one-off cover for a radio thing. I can see you might just throw that together and not really give it much thought. But to go and re-record a whole album that had only been out a couple of years is I don't pretty staggering. Been out I would that say. Long. Yeah. Yes. I. Yes. I know. I should also. But a full disclaimer: this is one of my husband's favorite albums. <laughs> <laughs> so it's obviously it's really enjoyable. It's just the, well, why do it? In terms yeah. of you know, like coming back to my earlier point about using cover versions to reach new audiences. My husband now has a real respect for Taylor Swift as a songwriter, and he didn't have that before. So yeah, yeah I mean, I'm thinking of another example I do actually quite like, which is uh, Future Head Towns of Love, oh, which uh, yeah, yeah. you know, I think I think they are absolutely genuine in their admiration for Kendrick, yes. and mm. I think yeah. it's all kind of you know transverse, and also the gap in time, you know, a good sort of twenty years. It's it's unlike the Taylor Swift. Yes, yeah, so I was actually thinking that. Actually, that's that's, yeah, that's maybe an exception to the rule because I think that's actually. Quite Quite good cover, yeah. Because I think it brings out some of the kind of you know how how critic what critics would always say about new wave music with its angularity. I say this with mm. like you know mm. like it, with you know inverted comma fingers, yeah. The, but but it, it does it does bring out that aspect of that song, yeah. Um, yes. And you know it could have been you know it, you hear that and it could have been a new wave song from back in the day. Yeah, yeah. No, I really like it. Um, Josh, any any thoughts on this particular topic? Or? Yeah, so I, um, I do understand that people probably put together covers without giving it much. As someone that uh, quite regularly does acoustic nights and stuff with uh, either just me or with my wife and stuff, you know, we quite often think of covers to play because they're entertaining for people and if people are out, they don't necessarily want to hear uh, you know, an original. So I think for an up-and-coming artist, actually, it's quite good to have covers as part of your repertoire to just get people to listen and then, you know, sort of off the back of that, maybe give stuff that you kind of write a chance. But in terms of particular covers that I think really just missed the mark, I think of Bowie and Jagger dancing in the street. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's not just ju- indie bands, it's, it's some of the rock just It's <laughs> terrible. The video is terrible. The <gasps> song is terrible. And actually, I would really recommend anyone listening to this. There's a version of it on YouTube, but they've taken out all the music and they just do 
just their vocals and the sound of their feet like tapping on the floor as they dance. So it's like as if they're dancing in an empty room. It's really, really funny. Sounds like you might disagree, Amy. I love that. I love yeah. no, that conversation. No, it's terrible. No. They themselves weren't taking it seriously, though, because they recorded sure. it. So they recorded it and filmed the video all in one day. Like, they just tossed it off. They didn't care. And it was good charity. And it shows. And it's charity. And it shows. But it, there's so much joy there. I think the charity... So I, I let them off because of the charity thing. But I have to say, for me at the time, it just emphasised the worst kind of jacket sleeves rolled up. 80s kind of big pop kind of horrendousness and for me it was just because it's for charity okay I'm just about let you off but look but how much fun they were having <laughs> no, and you think like these no. are the two of the coolest men of the 20th century and they were both oh, well, they were cool. themselves so uncool they weren't cool at that point you know I think that's the thing I, you know, yeah. that, that was a low point of, in both bands gestation and so, yeah. probably my other vote for worst yeah. cover ever and I think that probably I think you will agree with me on this although you might have never listened to it maybe have you ever heard the cover of Faith by Limp Biscuit? no what New Order's Faith? Uh, no, George Michael. George Michael. <gasps> <laughs> oh, it, it, I mean, even listening to it when I don't know how old I was when that came out. I guess early mid teens. Like he sort of the inflection on his. He does quite a camp voice even for the first. Ver- like it's even that I just went, oh, that's offensive. You know, yeah. even at that time before we yeah, some of the conversations we had now, when I was you know pretty young, I was just like, oh. Oh, this, and then he just basically shouts the chorus in that sort of a way. It, and then the big DJ scratching solo in the middle is a real pièce de résistance. So um, if people really want to be offended and hear something that they'll never want to hear again, I mm. suggest you look that up, but probably don't. Much like Elbow covering Jet- Destiny's Child, there's like a shit-eating insincerity to it. By yeah, the it's, it's, it's taking the mick out of it. Yeah, which, is a, co- which yeah. is a through line that you can draw through lots of, lots of bad covers. Yeah. So on this point, we're talking about covers that maybe missed the point of the original. I mean, any other examples? Uh, I actually came across one. It wasn't one I knew before, but I don't think anyone saw that Catfish and the Bottle Men did Kanye's Black Skinhead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. No. no, that's quite I a think, funny sentence, isn't it? I think that's. I think that's right. yeah. I actually, can, I, can I announce here that we're actually shutting down the podcast? <laughs> 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 no, and just when you thought that it couldn't get any worse, they actually... That was sounding bored, thanks everyone. They, they actually <laughs> intercept it in the middle with a bit of uh, Shoot the Runner by Kasabian. They fit together well. I, it, it's just terrible. It's really, really bad. So they really kind of did bad. a mashup with it? Yeah, I, and I, so I, was just, I just don't think you guys have really... It's got a cool drum part at the beginning that the drummer can do, and I think they just sort of did that. It's just really weird to see them sing the anyway. So that that was one that I thought was (laughs) pretty. pretty Another mashup that I do quite like is the Ukrainians, uh, the sort of wedding present spin-off, have done a cover of California Dreaming, which mutates into She's Lost Control by Joy Division, (laughs) all sung in Ukrainian. Um, <laughs> which is, is actually, as, as you can probably you don't even need to be told after that description is awesome yeah Amy any any others not quite on the level of catfish but you know I, mean, I know I don't know this is approaching that level of badness do you remember when Madonna covered American Pie yes. oh yeah yes. yeah I was about to it say it went on for like seven years American Pie just I don't know. I mean, <laughs> not not only should anybody who covers that be subject to like a, a court order, 
Yeah. But, but also, anybody who has that played at their wedding as well, I have to say I really loathe that song. So I we've just, established yeah. that none of us are fans of the song American yeah, Pie, yeah. including the original recording. Don't know, Josh. I can tolerate the original. You can tolerate the original. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but only think... the first couple of verses. Right, sure, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. 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 Horrendous misjudgment on her part. Although yeah, probably not was. in terms of financials. But... No, well, it was a huge hit at the time. Yeah. I think mean, 2000 it came out, but she was also starring in a film which was called The Next Best Thing. I had to look at my notes because I've never seen it and haven't heard of it since. It was clearly not particularly good. So she needed a song for that soundtrack. Mm. This often happens. You reach for the low-hanging fruit when you quickly need a recording for a, a soundtrack or for some other commercial reason. So she needed something. She didn't really think... This is one of the things that makes it bad. She didn't really... Firstly, it's not a great song to begin with. Secondly, she didn't really think about how to approach it interestingly. She... She recorded it in the style of the place where she was in her career at the time, which was production by William Orbit, but also transitioning towards Americana. Mm. So it's this like droning, electro William Orbity approach to this American quote unquote classic that just highlights everything that made the original boring and endless without highlighting anything that many people think at least are poetic about the song yeah. so it does it does completely miss the point I would say much as I'm not a fan of the mm. original so to switch to being a bit more positive what about covers that sort of maybe subvert the original and really add a new dimension I mean we've talked already about some that like the Pet Shop Boys that have changed things but anything that really gets deep in and like uses it to create a wholly different message yeah so I I thought that it was kind of interesting to see there are a few covers that um, you know you don't even really kind of know are covers at the, at the time so I think of maybe not in terms of the meaning of the song but something like Jimi Hendrix All Along the Watchtower that um, I think does a, a genre thing that's kind of really interesting that takes the the sort of the folk sound of the sort of early 60s and really takes it into that um, the hard rock thing that's going to come through in the kind of late 60s and into the 70s and because actually interestingly neither of them were particularly known for having like these amazing vocals I mean Bob Dylan you know he's a sort of a really iconic singer, but I don't know if you'd describe him as technically a great singer. There's an interesting <laughs> thing going on and, and actually, Jimi Hendrix has got a perfectly fine voice, and he does, he does that sort of talking, sing thing to get over that. But the way he could play guitar over it just added another sort of emotional layer to it, in my view, and sort of became the definitive version. Mm-hmm. And I suppose maybe started to say that not all the protest songs not all that was going on that's artistically interesting was only happening in the folk scene but actually the rock scene was maybe moving past just just being about teenage rebellion but you know having something else yeah. maybe to say so that would mm. be maybe something I'd suggest yeah it's interesting to think about it in the context of music history and, and what the evolution of, of rock what we think of now as classic rock yeah anything from you Amy on that particular point Yes. So I think I was thinking just briefly. I was thinking about the Falls cover version of "Lost in Music," the disco. Oh song. yeah, that's tremendous. Yeah. I think that's a really great cover mm-hmm. because simply because it brings out the sense of dread that's inherent in the lyrics, mm-hmm. which is in the you know the original is obviously kind of a very 
shiny, beautiful, soaring disco song. But when, you know, when you put when you put Marquis Smith on the vocals, <laughs> suddenly I'm caught in a trap. Takes on a whole new meaning. <laughs> and, uh, I think Marquis Smith can provide a genuinely different twist on, on yeah. any on any, any yeah. song you should choose to cover. It's a bit like the wedding present did a whole whole year of singles, and all the B sides were were covers including Pleasant Valley Sunday and a few others which mm. uh, came across in their usual abrasive style and actually you know really came off quite well so, yeah, yeah yeah he's this slightly divisive figure isn't he even now mm. he's passed but mm. yeah certainly some gems in that back and maybe like a similar thing they actually even soft sell tainted love as well Ooh, that sort of takes yeah. you know a kind of I guess like a Motown R&B song and really yeah and and also maybe sort of opens that song up to a different culture as well and you yeah. know lots of yeah that, that i think makes a slightly yeah, different play on, on the lyrics without changing them which is quite interesting just by who happens to sing it and the mm. way in which they sing it which and also showcasing forgotten gems that are yes. buried in back catalogues and perhaps yeah. might have gotten all together if these cover versions mm. didn't bring them to light again do you remember Quite a long time ago now, Crystal Castles covered this 80s hair, hair band song from the early 80s called I'm Not In Love. It had Robert Smith on vocals. That is fantastic. That's an amazing cover. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I mean, just utterly brilliant. Yeah, and yeah, I had never great. even heard... I mean, that, that, that song and that band all together are just lost to the annals of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really good. I mean, the other topic you might be able to pick out, I haven't prepared for this, but pick out some examples, is where... I mean, the Raincoats, actually. Yeah, I've got an example. The Raincoats did this with Lola by the Kinks. And it kind of made a sort of fairly straightforward heterosexual love song and converted it into, like, a gay anthem because you got the woman singing the lyrics that were originally sold, sung mm. by the man. Mm. So, you know, I think that that's a direct subversion, isn't mm. it? That is a direct subversion. Yeah. Yeah. So. Although the Beatles kind of did that, didn't they, as well? They, on they, is it on their first album? There's a song called Boys, Boys, Boys. Just mm-hmm. because culturally, you know, cover versions, that you didn't really think about changing the pronoun. So they just yeah. did a straight, a straight yeah. up cover. Yeah. But of course now, you know, we can interpret that in a subversive way. Yes, yeah. Anyway, after this break, we're going to be talking about a few more issues concerning cover versions before moving on to Mitski's album. So moving on from the discussion as has taken place so far, Josh, first of all, any quick comments on illegal or unacknowledged cover versions? So, I mean, I don't know about legal, but I think there are quite a few artists, particularly classic artists, that actually are famous for singing loads of covers and lots of people don't even realise that they're covers so the two examples that I particularly thought of were Elvis and Led Zeppelin now I know Dave Cox of this parish has uh, spoken at length about Elvis and you know I'm not saying it's like a secret or anything but actually lots of people don't realise that loads of the songs so that's just which is mine or a hound dog or mm. a lot of his famous songs had already been performed and recorded but that doesn't take away his interpretation of them or that, you know, he's iconic as a performer, but actually lots of people probably assumed he'd written quite a few of those. Well, this comes back to the authenticity thing, because I think we talked about this a bit in the Elvis podcast, like in the 50s, it was about being a singer. Yes. Songs were published and then artists performed them. Yes, exactly. Uh, so it's, it's, not, it's not a critique, it's more just a... Yeah. It, it's just interesting a lot... I, it wasn't until I was much, much older, you know, that I realised that 
those weren't original Elvis songs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because yeah. I just never really thought about it. Whereas I think Led Zeppelin are a little bit more controversial in terms yeah. of, you know, but having both lyrics and melodies that they borrowed. And again, which was common, you know, at the time, particularly in the blues scene, it was common to reinterpret things, which is also common in jazz, right? You have standards mm-hmm. and everybody does their own versions. That's not... Uh, it's not necessarily criticised, but you know they did have to be sort of sued in the eighties for some of their reasons <laughs> here before yeah. they yeah. really acknowledged people and yeah. and okay it was done, but yeah so like you know a whole lot of love had lyrics from Willie Dixon and Babe I'm Gonna Leave You and Dazed and Confused they were, you know they were all had bits borrowed from old blues songs and didn't the Rolling Stones um, lift a lot from early R and B as well yes mm-hmm. yes so stylistically it, I mean we're veering sure. towards sampling certainly in the latter era aren't we is like how much and then of course the whole key is whether you get permission or not and on this pod before we talked about Lana Del Rey and Radiohead mm. yeah, that I controversial it does but it does those those early examples that you cited George do read now very problematically because we're now in an era of questioning cultural appropriation and sure. of course cover versions as we are to understand them now were organised cultural appropriation in that they were covers of black artists' songs in order to popularise them for a mostly white audience. That was a conscious decision that was made. And so looking back on it now, it does leave a really um, nasty taste in the mouth. Yeah, I think you puff daddy every breath you take and that and that, that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you thought you were going to get through the podcast without me mentioning that. <laughs> I presume permission was was granted. For uh, that. Yes, I'm, I'm sure Sting got got a very healthy payday out of that. I'm sure. <laughs> but I mean, because I mean, in terms of the, the mashup thing, actually, I was thinking about Walk This Way with Run DMC and Aerosmith, which is quite an interesting because it's sort of a cover and an original at the same time. Mm. That there's sort of, I guess, kind of a collaboration, but it had already been um, released. But you know, that's when people sort of realised that rock and roll and rap. Mm. you know yes. actually work quite well it was a well seminal moment in the popularisation of yeah and right. unfortunately had some you know we've already mentioned Limp Bizkit which is now twice in a podcast and that is terrible <laughs> I do apologise to everyone listening for that mm. but you know that's unfortunately where it's kind of ended up but I think hip hop is a fascinating thing in terms of using bits and pieces of other songs and not really covers in that sense but you know definitely using other melodic ideas and reappropriating them in different yeah. contexts, you know, speeding them up, pitch shifting them and really making them into new songs. I think Kanye in particular, you know, really got famous from taking old soul yeah. samples. Um, you know, it's called like Chipmunk Soul, I think they call it. Because he would kind of pitch them up and speed them up and, yeah. you know, do some interesting things with them. And I, I, so it's not technically covers, but I think in terms of, getting lots of classic songs into the ears of another generation I think it did that yeah. really well yeah I think that's yeah I um, agree I think I that's agree. true yeah. now I think I'm a bit of a purist about this obviously we're now in an era in which culture is more self-referential than it ever has been and music is an example is one example of that and hip hop certainly did contribute to, did contribute in a large part towards that but <clears throat> I don't think remixes samples or mashups are cover versions no no. They're just not. They're a different thing. Yeah, and they they, they 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 perform some of the same functions, like bringing older songs to a new audience. You know, but they are they are later traditions, and they're different traditions. A cover is a new performance of a song originally performed or written by another artist. A remix is a new production of that same performance. 
A sample is an integrated aspect of one recording within another new recording, and a mashup is two recordings spliced together. Sure. It's just, it's pretty clean cut to me. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair enough. Basically, just to round off the discussion about cover versions, there's a few things to say about the business and career aspects, because I think, I guess... One of the things that an old cynic like might, like me might come at it from is to say well, it's an easy way to get a launch in your career. If you sort of pick out a cover version of a well-known song and somehow manage to get it noticed, you're probably going to sell a lot of copies in certain quarters. And, and, and you know, some, some artists, I think, even in the latter era, have like relied really heavily on cover versions to, to build up their career and get themselves noticed. But, you know, there's also a lot of cleverness involved and a lot of strategic thinking. I mean, any thoughts on that in terms of sort of getting signed, getting promoted, Josh? So I think that the, the sort of the bad end of it is looking at something like X Factor, right, where they try and launch each winner every year with a different, normally terrible cover. I think to give the Biffy Claro many of horror cover, which is, you know, actually a really dark song and they try to make that Christmas number, you know, just no to it whatsoever and just very cynically what's a song that people know and like let's go to sing that so people it gets on the radio um, so I, I think it, it definitely can be that although I'd say that it's not a new thing is it I mean people have been using covers to build a name for themselves I mean we just talked about so I have yeah. this right so it's it's not new although I do I do see that through you know I think if people set up business as a covers band you know and I think you're you, you're just you're basically just a reenactment society for for a band and you're making no you know you're just trying to be as authentic you know with the instruments that you use and how close to sounding like them and looking like them you can be and you sort of doing that from the outset then there's a there is a certain skill in being able to mimic it's just not the same as being original and I think if you're if you're not pretending you're original by doing it then I think that's fine I think you know just as long as you're honest about it up front yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we, I mean, the likes of Bjorn again and Oasis and these guys yeah, and, yeah. and the Smythes, I mean, they, they're tribute bands, aren't they? And they, they don't, I don't think they release any of their own no, music. No, no. Live acts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, whereas Lemonhead's doing Mrs. Robinson, you know, I mean, that's like kind yes. of, you know. Um, well, although, interestingly, I mean, in terms of releasing stuff, so one of the, phenomenons in modern times are YouTube covers channels and there's a couple of particularly popular ones that I've come across in one called Frog Leap Studios where a guy does shouty metal covers of all you know everything rock rap pop soul just all sorts of stuff and seems like actually a genuinely quite nice guy he releases a different song every week and every sort of 10-15 weeks releases that as an album and you know he, he credits everything you know so pays proper royalties and stuff but he's just made that his career and he makes funny videos to go with each one and in the middle of each cover he'll put like a, a little breakdown section or a solo that he adds to it so there's a bit of him in each thing and he's made a full time that's his full time job he makes mm-hmm. one of those a week the other one I've thought about is Postmodern Jukebox, who do uh, generally kind of swing, jazz, and kind of doo-wop covers of pop and rock yeah. songs to get various different guest artists to come in. And both these shows have multiple millions of sub- subscribers and, you know, will probably be making a decent living out of it. And I suppose they've not necessarily got aspirations as a solo artist necessarily but you know again I suppose as long as you're up front about it then it's okay you know um, 
But I always, I always think about one of my friends who works uh, doing production and stuff, saying that uh, sometimes with new diggy singer-songwriters, they'll get them to do covers and they'll purposely record it on bad cameras and with rubbish audio because it makes it more, quote, authentic. Mm. And uh, so there is a definite cynical thing of, you know, getting yeah. people to... That's a trick going back to the MySpace days. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, this is just some raw, this is just something no threw fire. together. Yeah. Yeah. And so you've discovered that only 10 people know about and you're ahead of the curve and aren't you mm. culturally mm. switched on. So, yeah, I think where people are upfront, for me, it's being upfront and honest. You know, my goal is to just cover this song best I can. Fine. Yeah. Um, so you're not trying to tell me, mm. you know, you're mm. an original musician. I think that's okay. Amy, any thoughts? Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I have opinions on authenticity. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I actually would draw a through line between those two things that you mentioned, Josh, between X Factor and American Idol and YouTube as a platform to launch new artists. They, I think both of them are actually, and particularly the X Factor and American Idol, back in the day at least, were, I think it was born out of a desire, kind of a, a search for authenticity after a couple of decades of quote-unquote manufactured pop acts because there was this desire suddenly for our pop stars to prove that they could sing and perform live and um, then you know this became it became this extremely well-oiled machine of forcing you know aspiring pop stars to prove their metal on the stage before they were finally rewarded with original material and um that's now obviously declining in its influence, even though you know it had a really good long run. But now, you know, I think YouTube is taking some of that role over. Just some of the uh, YouTube and Vine stars that are now major pop acts: Sean Mendes, someone called Justin Bieber that you might have heard about. Charlie Puth, Five Seconds of Summer, Alessia Cara, all really big pop stars that were launched either on Vine. The fact that you can launch an entire pop career from Vine, which is like five second loop over and over again, is quite remarkable to me. But, you know, yeah, we we see these kids proving themselves by kind of using this familiar material, material that we, we know whether it's performed good, well or badly, because it's material that we know well, we've seen it perform well in the past. And so we can kind of, we can assess those artists based on that familiar set of criteria before we decide we're going to give them a go. Yes, yeah, I think that's fair enough. I mean, one other last thing I wanted to make a point on, which I think is something you brought up in the run-up to the podcast, Josh, is covers as a live gimmick at gigs, which I have to say I'm not hugely keen on. I saw the big moon last year cover Total Eclipse of the Heart and I just wanted to kind of run for the hills and I just thought it was just such a... And everybody's there just nodding along as if they're a stag do or something yeah. and just saying no. But then I've, I've, seen, I've seen Prince cover Michael Jackson's Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, so... And that was a pretty magical moment, I would say. It was yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it wasn't. It was just a little tack on at the end. It wasn't like the main. If, if the cover seems like the high point of the gig, I think that's when you need to worry. <laughs> if yeah. that sort of seems like the crescendo is our cover of another, you know, cheesy song. Um, yeah. Yeah. After this break, we're going to be talking about Mitski's "Be the Cowboy." So the album we're going to look at this month is Mitski's fifth album, Be The Cowboy. Amy, what are your thoughts? Oh, I'm really excited to talk about this because I, I think it's beautiful. I really love it. So this is kind of, a, this is the, her fifth album, as you say. This is a, her breakout. This is her fifth album, but her breakout was really her previous album, which was called Puberty 2. 
which kind of got her lumped in with the kind of the 90s alt rock revival movement which is mostly now female artists female led bands and you know puberty tune made use of that sonic palette it's got crunching guitars a lot of feedback but it was there for a reason the form followed the content it was because the theme of that album was it was this idealized american adolescence that she'd imagined in her head um, while she was moving around the world with her japanese american family it was this fantasy that didn't exist um so it was a really interesting album from that reason but I didn't find it nearly as emotionally moving as I do this album. She's obviously a lot more diverse than 90s alt rock and she's classically trained and she can do a lot more than that. And this album dials back the guitar feedback and plays with genre quite a lot. There's a country song, there's a disco song, there's an EDM, it's very atmospheric. Yeah, I think it's incredibly emotionally resonant. There's a lot of her personality in it. It's very introspective, very introverted, very poetic, lyrically um, complex and, and moving without ever being too opaque. I think it's brilliant. And just half an hour as well. Just 33 minutes. Yeah, yeah and most of the songs are come under three minutes, don't they? Yeah. Yes, which is a strength and a weakness in some ways. I think she, just as some of those, the song, the songwriting, I mean, she can obviously write a a classical pop song she wants to she's been to music school she knows how to do that doesn't particularly interest her but sometimes you feel as though the songs are just getting into their stride and she's just really kind of getting her feet under the table in terms of the, the genre that she's she's that, that, that she's she's utilizing and then the song finishes and she moves on to another one and it kind of contributes to that aloofness that is part of her trademark but it can also sometimes be frustrating yeah yeah, yeah. How about you, Josh? What you um, make I would it? say I also really like this album. I'd not come across Nesky before, so I, I went into this kind of completely blind, really, and only sort of after I listened to it a couple of times, went and sort of had a look at what else you had done. So didn't know it was her fifth album or you know anything like that. And I was really pleased as well because actually some of the other I was that I've been on the podcast review. I've kind of been a bit ambivalent about, and you know, there's been a few good things to pick out. But actually, this one, I so the first track, you know, instantly grabbed me by starting quite, quite, and then instantly going out into this sort of really maximal production you know, with mm. brass and synths and guitars. Uh, <laughs> I think made else feel a little bit Pirates of the Caribbean by the end. It kind of <laughs> it's weird, yeah, like, it's sort weird. of because it's kind of got a six eight thing to it. It's got that sort of weird funny lilt. But I thought particularly the first three tracks really kind of grabbed me from the off. Um, the, the lyrically again, I thought it was it's quite funny in bit. So that mm-hmm. second track which starts with you know I know I ended it, but why won't you chase after me? Yeah, you and know I was, me better than <laughs> yeah, 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 all that sort of stuff. And which is kind of you know it's a bit tragic, but also quite self knowing. And you know obviously I don't. Know that's necessarily about her or about people she knows but you know there was a a wit to it and I thought as well she's just got a really great voice it's really easy to listen to it's not overly kind of ornamental in the way she sings she sticks the melody but has got some real chops in some of the runs as well Mm. I by the end of the album the my only sort of point was it's quite deadpan in delivery and I think that's obviously on purpose and a stylistic thing I thought actually with the voice that you've got I wish you'd maybe just let rip once or twice that there were maybe a couple of minutes to really maybe let that break out a little bit I understood why she did it but that's just a personal preference thing I'd probably second that on the deadpan delivery but I mean that's interesting though what you're saying both of you have said about the how varied it is you know in terms of the type of music and there's, there's grandeur here and there do you think that's why it's come until these two albums for the breakout to happen that she's now 
assemble potentially a little bit more publicity and a little bit more cash to maybe kind of let loose a bit more with the songs and maybe the earlier releases which I'm not I'm not that familiar with were a bit more lo-fi a little bit more homespun and it's difficult to get noticed yeah well I mean her first two or three of her albums were were written and recorded when she was at music school she was at university at the time so they were they were student productions really yeah and Yes, she yes she's got more publicity behind her, but she doesn't have a huge A and R team or a big production team behind her. Max Martin isn't involved with this this album. The producer is Patrick Highland, who is this longtime collaborator of hers that she's always worked with, and hasn't he hasn't worked with any other artist at all. Right. So it's still very much her thing. Yeah. I think it's it's more that she always had this in her, and perhaps she now is, is maturing as a songwriter, and perhaps feels confident, com- confident, yeah. comfortable to experiment a little bit more. Coming back to the point that you made about that, you know that that. Uh, Aloofness, the lyrically, the, the the vocally at least, the, the the lack of willingness to really let rip, which I'm sure she. Well, I don't, I don't think it's a lack of willingness. It's it's a choice. I, it, yeah. it sounds deliberate to me, but I just personally, I'd have thought. I think I can hear in your voice that you you could really let rip, and what would be yeah. maybe nice is to have a moment in the album where she you do that. that, and that that just would have been. I would have just liked to have heard that. And that's because, totally yeah. that's a totally valid point. And I would mm. love to hear that as well. But I would also love to hear her in the album singing about a genuine emotional connection that she's made. But the whole album is about the the yearning for that and her failure to be able to sure. do that. Sure. And so I think it's completely on theme. Mm. Does she sing more like that in her other albums? Yes. <laughs> so no. that's a bit oh, more. Um, no, 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 no. She's always that. no. She's always been all that. Okay, so that is, is like her. sort of her yeah. as well. So yeah. I mean, I, I say that I've only heard Puberty too, but yeah. Because um, yeah. I also thought it was really interesting that you said she was classically trained. Because one of the things I could pick up were the use of slightly more complex kind of chords. Um, so I know she writes on keys and things, but there's kind of little extra notes and moving bass notes under there that it's not just four chord patterns no. repeated over and over again. And like one particular little musical motif that I really liked is in the third track, Old Friend, and the chorus. Um, so most of the songs in four four. But in the chorus, she she has 16 beats, but she seems to divide them up sort of six, six, and four. And uh, there's so there's like an off kilter timing thing. And because the song seems to me a bit about remembering someone, it's like how a memory of someone can kind of throw you off kilter a little oh, bit. Yes. It's kind of something. That's what I got from it anyway. Oh, I'm not missing it, but that. I, that's so good. I, and I kind of so what I really enjoyed about this as well was it's not in your there's not loads of in your face. I can do all this stuff. There's it's more. She has the capability of just doing little subtle musical things. She's just obviously got that in her locker to actually express something. It's not just prog rock, let's just see what let's write the weirdest thing we can to show off. But, you know, actually I'm I can write a nice kind of simple strumming guitar country song, but I can also do something that's got these little subtle compositional elements to it. And as yeah, someone that listens to a lot of music and things, I really appreciated the effort into that and not making that necessarily front and centre but just every now and again having little moments like that that really you know there's a couple of key changes and stuff that really shifts the mood um, in in the middle of a particular song and I I really I really enjoyed this album I have to say and I've listened to it several times you know all the way through with no bother which maybe also helps because it's short okay (laughs) all right well thanks very much folks good to have you on again both of you and we'll have you on I'm sure within the next few months and we will be back in October 2018 with episode 34.
thank you for listening. You can interact with the team at, at Sounding Board 69 on Twitter and Facebook.